welcome to episode two of the BitBlock Boom podcast. I'm your host, Gary Leland, and the producer of the BitBlock Boom Bitcoin Conference. Just for reference, I also host the Crypto Cousins podcast, the Railroaded podcast, and the 4-Minute Crypto Show. You should be able to find all those podcasts wherever you're listening to this podcast, iTunes, Google, or wherever. In August, I will host another BitBlock Boom Bitcoin conference in Dallas, Texas with the help of my friends. If you have an interest in Bitcoin, you really need to visit bitblockboom.com and look at the great speaker lineup and all the events that are going on around BitBlockBoom. BitBlockBoom is a Bitcoin conference, and I really do mean a true Bitcoin conference. And if you use the code COUSINS, when purchasing your conference tickets, you'll receive 30% off the price at this year's event. On today's episode, I bring you a session from the first BitBlockBoom conference that was held in 2018. The episode features a session from Pierre Rochard. In case you're not familiar with Pierre, he is a software engineer and co-host of the Noted podcast. He is also running the Lightning Power Users. Today's session by Pierre is titled Proof of Hat. This was a great session and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it completely. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Gary, for organizing this fantastic conference today. Uh, I hope that this is the first of many very successful conferences we have here in Dallas. Dallas is uh, in the middle of the United States. It makes sense to do a conference here rather than on uh, one of the coasts. Uh, Today, I'm going to be speaking about Bitcoin governance, and I think the first question that would come up is, why do we care? Thankfully, Safety just spent an hour explaining why we care. Uh, we care because Bitcoin enables sound money, and we can't have sound money if the form of governance uh, lends itself to being corrupted and leading to inflation. So uh, we're going to explore why is it that uh, Bitcoin's governance is so resilient to attempts to modify uh, Bitcoin's rules. Well, actually, I, I wanted to, uh, yeah, Michael Goldstein uh, put it, and this, this echoes uh, Safedine, that sound money is a foundational pillar of civilization, and Bitcoin restores this powerful tool for social coordination. And I think that if, if Bitcoin's governance model is flawed, which critics have accused it of being flawed, and often it's to promote their own altcoin that has a different form of governance, uh, then we should explore how it's flawed and, and try to fix it. Because I think that if, if civilization's future is riding on this technology, uh, we should be trying to optimize the uh, form of governance. Um, and the conversations about Bitcoin's governance are always centered on who who's in charge, whether it's the uh, VC-backed businesses, or the miners, or the developers, or the nodes. The ongoing debate about Bitcoin's governance is who's in charge, uh, whereas the actual purpose and the mechanics of governance are just implied or not discussed at all. Uh, and views on whether governance is effective or not are just driven by who won the debate or lost the debate rather than the adequacy of the decision-making process itself. So what is Bitcoin governance? Bitcoin governance is the, the process by which 
a set of transaction and block verification rules are decided upon, implemented, and enforced such that individuals adopt these rules for verifying the payments they received in transactions and blocks fit their personal subjective definition of what is Bitcoin. Uh, and then if two or more individuals adopt the same set of validation rules, and so they have the same subjective view of what is Bitcoin, they form what's called an intersubjective social consensus of what Bitcoin is. So this is troubling for a lot of people who want to have an objective definition of what is Bitcoin. Well, surely, you know, it's whatever's written in the white paper, or uh, we can find some kind of uh, measure of uh, how much hash rate there is, or things like this. And I think that the, the problem with trying to have an objective measure of what Bitcoin is, is that that inherently makes Bitcoin centralized. Because now you've reduced Bitcoin down to one variable. And if Bitcoin is to have any chance to uh, withstand the barrage of inflationists that want to increase that 21 million Bitcoin cap, it has to be decentralized. Its definition has to be decentralized, and thus it has to be driven by the subjective views of everyone in this room and everyone outside of this room. And so far, that's actually been working pretty well. So. What is, the, what is the purpose of Bitcoin's governance? Uh, there's, there's different views on what Bitcoin governance should be optimizing for. Uh, Matt Corallo argues that trustlessness is the most important property of Bitcoin. He, he defines it as the ability to use Bitcoin without trusting anyone but the open source software you run. Uh, and without the property of trustlessness, in his view, all the other positive things that we might optimize for are jeopardized. And the opposite view, or not the opposite view, an alternative view uh, from Daniel Krewis is that uh, governance maximizes the value of Bitcoin. Uh, and that's kind of what it de facto optimizes for. Uh, he states that the general rule about Bitcoin upgrades is that upgrades which increase Bitcoin's value will be adopted and those which do not, will not be adopted. So I think that these two views are kind of um, means versus ends arguments, or uh, in philosophy, deontological versus consequentialist uh, uh, ethics. And my, my bias is towards the trustlessness argument. I think that uh, the, throughout monetary history, and Seyfedean could talk about this, uh, from ancient coin producers to modern central banks, trusting others to produce money has resulted in abuse of that trust. And we simply just cannot trust a third party to be in charge of how much money gets created. So I think that trustlessness is just table stakes for Bitcoin. Um, on top of that, you could see scenarios where if we compromise on trustlessness a little bit today, uh, we can increase Bitcoin's value a lot in the short run, uh, for example, by being able to process billions of transactions. And then, before you know it, the whole system becomes centralized and loses its property of trustlessness, and now we've dramatically impoverished Bitcoin and reduced its value. So, I would argue that there can be uh, local optimizations that cause a, a global uh, 
suboptimal outcome. Um, and then there's just no evidence that Bitcoin's price has been correlated with upgrades to the Bitcoin protocol. Uh, perhaps Bitcoin's fundamental value is affected by upgrades, but Bitcoin is so illiquid and volatile today that the price does not reliably reflect fundamental value. Uh, and if we can't observe the, the consequences of an upgrade on Bitcoin's value, then I think that the, the consequentialist approach of value maximization uh, seems inadequate. So before we can evaluate whether Bitcoin's governance is delivering trustlessness, uh, we should go through and describe how it works. So the Bitcoin governance process maintains a set of verification rules. At a high level, this long set of verification rules covers syntax, data structures, resource usage limits, sanity checks, time locking, reconciliation with the memory pool and main branch, the Coinbase reward and fee calculations, and block header verification. Uh, amending these rules without trade-offs is no easy feat. Uh, it's, they all kind of rely on each other and, and build up to be a, uh, an entire peer-to-peer -peer network. Uh, the, the block header verification rules in particular are the most important because those are, those are the rules that determine how proof of work functions. So most of these rules were inherited from Satoshi Nakamoto and some have been added or amended to address bugs and denial of service vulnerabilities. Other rule changes occurred to enable innovative new projects. So I think this is why uh, it, people will be like, well, you know, there's no reason to change Bitcoin's verification rules because they're working today. And that's, that's true. Uh, but there are some low-hanging fruits, some improvements that we can make that would make it so that, you know, Safety Dean was talking about level two on uh, Coinbase. Well, what if we could do level two that is relatively trustless as well? And that way we don't have to necessarily be using Coinbase because we could have a level two peer-to-peer -peer network. Uh, and the most famous one right now is called the Lightning Network. So. Uh, the, uh, a rule change that helped enable Lightning Network is the uh, check sequence verify opcode that was added. Uh, so that allows a progressive improvement to Bitcoin. Um, and the first step to this is research. Well, there's, there's five steps, research, proposal, implementation, deployment, and then enforcement. So on research, uh, I think that the most the best example of how Bitcoin's governance works is how the SegWit upgrade was rolled out. Uh, SegWit was a major change to the verification rules of Bitcoin. Uh, it fundamentally uh, altered its architecture in ways. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to get Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos and reading that book from cover to cover because uh, he presents a, a technical view of how Bitcoin functions for non-technical people. So you don't have to be a programmer to read this book and benefit from it, I highly recommend it. Um, after you've read Safety's book, of course. So uh, SegWit began with research into fixing what's called transaction malleability. Uh, and this had become a serious issue because uh, transaction malleability prevented the Lightning Network from deploying on top of Bitcoin. Uh, industry and independent researchers collaborated uh, on what eventually became SegWit. Uh, so, 
this worked very well for SegWit, but in other cases, there have been criticisms about the research process. Uh, there's occasionally a, a disconnect between what the researchers want to research, because we have to keep in mind this is decentralized, right? So it's not like the researchers get a memo from the CEO that, hey, next quarter we're going to be researching how to uh, do X, Y, and Z. No, it's, it's all, it's grassroots, and so it's driven by what researchers are interested in. This means that there can be a disconnect between what the researchers are interested in and what the users are interested in or what would be good for the network and uh, its properties. Uh, additionally, I think that there's a, a disconnect between the academic computer scientists who prefer uh, simulations over engineering experiments, and I think that that has held back the research process in certain cases. Uh, and it's been a source of tension in the research community where, for example, uh, a lot of academics were dissatisfied with the research that was put into uh, Lightning Network's uh, topology. And from the engineering perspective, it's like, okay, well, let's do the experiment, right? That's what the scientific process is all about. Uh-oh, we've disconnected the... Uh, that's okay. Um, so the next step is the proposal step. It's okay, the slides usually only have like one word on them, so I'll finish it. Here we go. Okay, sorry you guys missed out on that. Uh, proposal. So a researcher uh, discovers a solution to a problem, right, through uh, his research process, and they share proposed changes to Bitcoin's verification rules with other protocol developers. So this sharing can be done at conferences. They have like technical conferences, for example, like scaling Bitcoin or building on Bitcoin. Um, and they also can be shared as emails to the Bitcoin dev mailing list. Uh, it could be a formal white paper and or a, what's called a Bitcoin improvement proposal, a BIP, which is kind of a, a formalized way of explaining what your motivations and what the specifications of the changes that you want to make look like. So this, at this stage of uh, a proposal, there's a lot of debate that goes on between the protocol developers. Uh, each of these people is strongly opinionated. Uh, they are very disagreeable in their personality. I think the Bitcoin selects for that. Uh, some of them have big egos. Other, others are incredibly humble. And so it's just a, a wide set of very intelligent people who have been thinking about Bitcoin's verification rules and the implications that those verification rules have on the network and then on the economic properties that result from that. So this step is uh, the most brutal step in terms of how much negative feedback you're going to get uh, but it's also, I think, the most constructive step in the sense that you can take all of that feedback and improve your proposal so that ultimately people find it to be a net improvement to Bitcoin. So assuming that your proposal has gained traction, uh, the next step is implementation. So a proposal is implemented in the node software by the researchers who proposed it or by other protocol developers who are interested in it. Uh, if a researcher cannot implement a proposal or the proposal does not attract favorable peer review, then it will just linger at this stage until it's either abandoned or revised. Uh, well, this may give the impression that 
the other Bitcoin protocol developers uh, can veto a proposal. Uh, but I think that's misguided because we have to keep in mind that this is decentralized. So you don't need the approval of any given Bitcoin protocol developer to take a change and implement it yourself in open source software and then release that software to the public and get other people to run it. And if they run it, that becomes Bitcoin. Uh, and you don't need the permission of other developers. Now, the issue with that approach is that if the other developers have strong disagreement with your proposal, uh, odds are the general public will look at those strong disagreements and err on the side of caution. There, there are billions of dollars riding on the Bitcoin network at this point. It's functioning very well. So there is a bias towards not making changes if they are controversial. But ultimately, if the public, if the Bitcoiners and the Twitter trolls and the community, uh, they want to see a change in Bitcoin that disagrees with a few of the Bitcoin developers, uh, then we'll see that change happen. And that's the beauty of decentralization. So another problem at the implementation phase is that the maintainers of what's called the reference implementation, that is uh, Bitcoin Core. It, so Bitcoin Core is 98% of the nodes on the Bitcoin network that are using this software. So it has the preponderance of, you know, the determining what the reference, what the uh, protocol rules are. Uh, and the maintainers of this refer reference implementation, Bitcoin Core, they won't merge in a uh, uh, an implementation of a rule change if it's widely seen as contentious within either the community or among the developers or businesses. Uh, and they have a deliberate policy of following consensus changes rather than trying to impose them. Because it, it would be very uh, tempting if you, if you know that 90% of the network is running your software, that hey, if I make this change unilaterally, then these 98% of people are gonna come along with me and we're going to change Bitcoin in my direction. So the danger with that is that A, obviously that would be centralized, and B, it would cause people to stop using that software. So they would quickly lose that 98% market share and the entire software development process around Bitcoin would fragment around different implementations. Uh, so that's why they have a policy of, of following consensus changes uh, because ultimately not doing that would be self-defeating uh, and not in the interest of anyone. So the, the reference implementation Bitcoin Core is the direct successor of Satoshi's codebase. Uh, and the maturity and reliability of this codebase is why 98% of the network is using it. Uh, and it's also, that reliability is a result of a rigorous development process. Uh, changes to the code are carefully peer-reviewed by the best Bitcoin engineers. In the case of the SegWit rule changes, an entire test network was spun up to simulate real-world operation. So these, this is not some kind of cowboy hacking open source project. Uh, there's a lot of thought and review that goes into every single line of code that is being changed uh, to make sure that they improve Bitcoin rather than undermine it. Um, now, there's 
as I was saying earlier, you can you can wrap around. You don't have to use the reference implementation, right? So we saw this last year with a movement within the Bitcoin community called UASF, user activated software, uh, and they basically wanted to overrule the miners who were not implementing SegWit, and the Bitcoin core developers refused to merge in uh, UASF into their code base because from their point of view, the miners um, were, the, the system was functioning fine. And if, some, if a constituency within Bitcoin doesn't want to implement a change, then so be it, let's not rock the boat. Um, there were people who disagreed with that point of view. Uh, one of them, his, his pseudonym is Shaolin Fry, uh, disagreed so strongly that he went out and wrote his own code and then released it to the public and said, hey, if you want SegWit, which is going to enable the Lightning Network, download my node software, don't download the reference implementation. Now granted, his code was just a modification to the reference implementation because this is all open source and you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time you want to release the node software. Um, and sure enough, that picked up a tremendous amount of steam and to the point that it was a, uh, a standoff between the miners and the community that ultimately UASF prevailed and SegWit got activated. So it goes to show that uh, the reference implementation and the developers and the maintainers around it are not gatekeepers in a traditional sense uh, because it's so easy to copy the code as open source and release your own implementation. Um, so on a, on a more technical level, a proposal to change Bitcoin's validation rules can have a soft fork or a hard fork implementation. Uh, some proposals can only be implemented as a uh, hard fork. A soft fork implementation is what's called forward compatible. So with a soft fork, a, the pre-fork nodes, that is the people who have not upgraded their software, they don't need to upgrade their software in order to continue validating the consensus rules as they existed before the software. However, uh, these, these nodes that have not upgraded, they're not validating rule changes made by the software. So, uh, you know, it's, it's for each person to make up their own mind as to whether they upgrade their software or not. Generally a good idea to do so. Uh, a hard fork is forward incompatible. Uh, and the pre-fork nodes will end up on a different network than the, uh, quote, upgraded nodes. And we saw this, for example, with the Bitcoin Cash hard fork, uh, where people were running uh, changes to the rules, to Bitcoin's validation rules, that were just simply incompatible with the rest of the network, and it naturally partitioned off and became its own uh, currency and its own uh, community. So there's been controversy about the effects of hard and soft forks, both on the network and on the users. Uh, soft forks are seen as being safer than hard forks. In fact, uh, Bitcoin, in modern Bitcoin history, has only ever done soft forks. Uh, we haven't seen a Bitcoin hard fork where essentially Bitcoin's consensus came with it. Because the Bitcoin Cash hard fork did not have Bitcoin's social consensus follow those that change in the rule set, uh, which is why you know they're listed as BCH on exchanges and not as BTC. Uh, but it's it's not outside of the realm of possibilities that we would see a hard fork that would indeed have Bitcoin go along with it. 
Uh, we saw this with Ethereum uh, several years ago when they hard forked. The social consensus went with the hard fork and the other fork, the original chain, uh, became Ethereum Classic and traded under a different ticker symbol. So there is debate about whether Bitcoin can hard fork or not. Uh, some people uh, argue that Bitcoin will never hard fork unless it's an emergency security situation or it's fixing a, a bug. Uh, for example, there's a bug that makes it so that Bitcoin must hard fork before the year 2100. Otherwise, uh, the, the, there's an issue with the uh, dates, kind of like we had with Y2K. Um, so we've got... Mm, 72 years to figure this out, and uh, I hopefully I'm around for that hard fork. That'd be great. <laughs> uh, so they, the reason softworks are seen as safer is because they don't um, require an explicit opt-in, uh, but this can also be seen as coercive. So some, some users view it as like they had SegWit imposed upon them against their will, um, and someone who disagrees with a soft fork must hard fork to reverse it, so it imposes a cost on them that uh, could be seen as unfair. Now, once the proposal has been implemented as a soft fork or a hard fork, there's the deployment phase. Um, users must be persuaded to use the node software that implements these new uh, verification rules, and not not all users are equal in their importance in terms of what node software they run. For example, the node software that Coinbase runs has hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of retail investors who are only marginally interested in Bitcoin and have not put any thought into why this even works at all. And some of them don't even know that there's only 21 million Bitcoins. So anyway, they delegate all of their decision-making uh, decision to Coinbase, and then Coinbase decides which node to run for them. And it's the same thing for block explorers, for example. When you go use a block explorer, you're relying on their node. You're trusting them to be providing accurate data. Um, so there's that. And then if, if you own a lot of Bitcoins uh, on your cold storage, on your uh, paper wallet, or however you decide to store your Bitcoins, and you're using a node to validate that Bitcoins that you receive are actually Bitcoins, you're going to have more weight in this than someone who uh, just has a couple of Satoshis that they are verifying. So it's not a uh, democracy of one node equals one vote, uh, but rather because it's a social consensus, and as we know, in the realm of social relations, there's uh, inequality. Uh, we see this replicated in Bitcoin as well. Um, and exchanges also have the ability to choose which set of validation rules belongs to which ticker symbol. So I was talking about you know, BTC versus BCH, or uh, F versus Ethereum Classic, et cetera. Uh, so this does give exchanges some power in terms of the when there's a debate, a contentious debate within the community as to which uh, side of a hard fork is the, um, is the social consensus. Now, this, this, this power ultimately is checked uh, by speculative traders, by large holders, and by other exchanges. So by no means are exchanges centralized. In fact, one of the 
huge criticisms of the Bitcoin market is how fragmented liquidity is across all these different exchanges. So I think that this is a particularly robust part of Bitcoin's governance is how decentralized the trading of Bitcoin is among exchanges and then OTC brokers, local Bitcoins, etc. So uh, individual users can signal on social media that they're using a certain version of the node software. Uh, and we saw this with UASF, everyone was using hashtag UASF to show that they were running a node that had this uh, a different set of validation rules. And then we saw the same thing in, in kind of in reverse with the hashtag Node2x, which was that uh, people were signaling that they're not running the quote upgrade of Bitcoin and they have rejected this uh, uh, corporate takeover. And the, the problem with this aspect of Bitcoin's uh, governance is that this can be civil attacked. And so a civil attack in computer science is when you can, in, 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 in Twitter terms, create a bunch of fake accounts and then uh, astroturf it so that it looks like, oh, this proposal is very popular in the community, uh, whereas all of these accounts were uh, are just paid shills. So, the ultimate test of consensus is not logging onto, Vic or onto Twitter and seeing uh, what the uh, hashtag is trending. Uh, the ultimate test of consensus is whether your node software can receive payments that you consider to be Bitcoins, and you can send payments to your counterparty's node software that they consider to be Bitcoins. And so I think that ultimately the truth is, is what happens on the network. Uh, not anything else about uh, what's going on in social media. Uh, now, granted, we've seen some good correlation between what happens on the network and what happens on social media. So I don't want to dismiss it entirely, and I'll be the first to uh, put up a hashtag next time we have some uh, Bitcoin activism around rule changes, probably short signatures. Uh, so softworks have an on-chain governance feature called BIP9 version bits with timeout and delay. Um, and this, this feature measures minor support for soft forks on a rolling basis. Minor support for proposals is used as a proxy measure for the wider community support. Unfortunately, this proxy measure can be inaccurate due to mining centralization and also conflicts of interest between miners, users, developers, etc. Um, so on-chain voting by miners also perpetuates the myth that mine, Bitcoin is a miner democracy uh, and that the miners alone decide on transaction and block validity. So the, the, I'll get into why that's uh, problematic uh, in the enforcement part. Uh, and then BIP9 is useful only to the extent to, that we recognize and accept that there are limitations to this uh, proxy measurement of uh, Bitcoin's governance. So the next step is enforcement. Uh, changes to the validation rules are enforced by the decentralized peer-to-peer -peer network of fully validating nodes. Nodes use the verification rules to independently verify that payments received by the node operator are invalid Bitcoin transactions and are included in valid Bitcoin blocks. Nodes will not propagate transactions and blocks which break the rules. In fact, nodes will disconnect and ban peers 
which are sending invalid transactions and blocks. Uh, my, one of my uh, favorite uh, pseudonymous Twitter accounts, uh, Stop and Decrypt, described this as Bitcoin is an impenetrable fortress of validation. If everyone determines that a mined block is invalid, then the miners' Coinbase reward and fees are worthless. So the role of miners in all of this is to provide a timestamping function secured with proof of work. The amount of hash rate provided is based on the cost of hardware and electricity on one hand, uh, and the revenue from the Coinbase reward and fees on the other hand. Miners are mercenaries. They will mine whatever is profitable. Uh, and in the past, they have provided their timestamping function without full rule validation. So due to mining centralization and the issue of miners not always validating the rules, they cannot be trusted to enforce the validation rules on their own. And we must have a peer-to-peer -peer network of nodes that is operated by people verifying that the payments they are receiving are in fact Bitcoin. So back to the, uh, the outcomes we're looking for, trustlessness uh, versus value maximization. Um, my view is that Bitcoin's governance model thus far in modern history has prevented a degra degradation of trustlessness. Uh, the, the dramatic increase of on-chain Bitcoin transactions that we've seen over the past five years seem to have no end in sight. Uh, and Part of the reason for that is that uh, Bitcoin transactions are a negative externality on Bitcoin nodes who have to store these transactions, verify these transactions uh, in perpetuity, and uh, they, the nodes are not compensated. People run nodes because they subjectively want to verify that the money that they're receiving is actually what they are expecting. Um, but they're verifying everyone else's transactions at the same time to maintain the, the trustlessness of Bitcoin. Uh, and so as, these tr as the transaction volume increases and imposes this increasing cost on nodes, uh, you would naturally see fewer and fewer nodes until at, at the end of it, it would be fully centralized uh, by miners and would not be trustless anymore. So uh, if Bitcoin's governance uh, had not been resistant to last year's minor signaling for a doubling of uh, what's called the maximum block weight, which is the uh, maximum number of transactions you can have on a block, uh, a precedent would have been set for valuing transaction throughput above trustlessness. So I think that on the trustlessness uh, argument, uh, Bitcoin's governance has been flawless. Now, on the uh, increasing Bitcoin's value uh, area, I think that there's a lot of debate in the community as to whether uh, that has been uh, effective in the sense that we saw a massive rise in the number of altcoins and their valuations. Um, and at the same time, though, we saw Bitcoin's value dramatically increase. So clearly it wasn't a substitution effect. Uh, there's something else going on. Now, Bitcoin's price has gone up along with uh, you know, the robustness of its uh, governance, but I don't think that we can establish a causal relationship. Uh, it seems to be an endogenous process driven by trader psychology, not technological fundamentals. Uh, a great example of that is if you look at the altcoins that 
basically are entirely centralized, have no underlying technology, the white paper was copy-pasted, uh, I won't mention names, but Tron is an example. Uh, they are trading at wild valuations. So clearly there's a disconnect between uh, the today's price and the underlying technology, uh, and also the underlying properties of these networks. Uh, but I think that time will sort that out. Um, and then re regarding the, the fundamentals of uh, Bitcoin's technology, it's undeniable that Bitcoin's governance has delivered on consensus, consensus changes which Layer 2 Lightning Network depended on to operate. So we fixed transaction malleability, we added check sequence verify, and I think that um, Lightning Network represents the most important innovation on the payments layer uh, that we've seen since the creation of Bitcoin itself. And there's no doubt in my mind that the Lightning Network increases Bitcoin's value dramatically. Um, and, and Safety was saying, like the, the layer one settlement layer uh, does not scale because it's a global broadcast medium. The layer two can scale. And then the question is, what kind of layer two do we want? Do we want a layer two that is highly centralized, you know, on Coinbase or uh, on other uh, services like that? Or do we want a layer two that is trustless and provably cryptographically 100% reserved, which is very important for a lot of uh, Austrian economists. Uh, and I think that Bitcoin's governance is moving us towards a world where we do have a trustless layer two, and I just consider that to be an unequivocal success. Uh, thank you, and enjoy the rest of the conference. I told you that was going to be good. Now, if you want to find out more about Pierre, I have recorded two interviews with him on the Crypto Cousins podcast. You may want to go listen to one or both of these. You can follow him on Twitter at Pierre Rochard. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and sharing the BitBlock Boom podcast with your friends. It'd be great if you could give the show a five-star review on iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen with. The next episode of the podcast will feature Michael Goldstein, who's also known as Bitstein, and that's going to be another great session. Thanks for listening to this episode of the BitBlock Boom podcast. Make sure and take a look at this year's lineup at bitblockboom.com, and I hope I get to meet you at the next BitBlock Boom conference in Dallas, Texas. The BitBlock Boom podcast and the information included in this podcast are not intended as investment advice. Investing in Bitcoin is risky and you should never invest more than you can afford to lose. Always seek professional advice before investing and please understand you're using any and all information from the BitBlock Boom podcast at your own risk. Bitblock Boom.